Sin is messy. Sin is destructive. It brings consequences. It ruins relationships. We see the reality of Genesis 3 every single day. We see the reality of Adam's sin and how his sin has affected every one of us because it's made each of us a sinner. But we also see the promise in Genesis 3 every single day. God promised he would send a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of Satan himself. That redeemer is none other than Jesus Christ. So why do we need to remember this gospel promise about Jesus, our Redeemer? Because we've all messed up our lives and found ourselves dealing with the fallout of sinful decisions, sinful words, sinful thoughts, sinful deeds, and sinful relationships. We have all messed up our lives because of sin. So what do you do when you've made terrible decisions and sin has ruined your life and made it a mess? When sin messes up and twists our lives, it may appear that sin has the final word, but it doesn't. Remember, in Genesis 3, God promised a redeemer, his son, Jesus Christ. And part of Jesus' redeeming work is not just saving us from the penalty and power of sin. Jesus also, as a redeemer, our redeemer, enters into our messy, twisted, sin-soaked lives. And he begins working. To bring about redemption. He enters our lives and rolls up his sleeves, if you will, to begin bringing about redemption in the mess that we have created. That's the gospel. That's good news. And so our big idea today that I learned from my professor in seminary, Dr. Jeff Bingham, and I've told you this before, but it's worth repeating. It's this. Grace not only forgives the bad things you do, it transforms you out of the bad thing you are. What I mean is that grace is not some magic wand that you can wave over your life and you're forgiven. And then there's no consequences to your sin. There are consequences when we sin. And God does not necessarily erase the consequences. Sometimes in his mercy, he does. But God's grace to us in Jesus Christ does forgive us. However, God is not merely interested in forgiving us. He also wants to transform us. He wants to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. He wants to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus. And this process of transformation is called sanctification. There's a, a big theological word for you to know and love because if you're a Christian, it's actually happening in your life every day. Sanctification is described this way in question number 35 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question, what is sanctification? Answer, sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. 
and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Sanctification is the work of God's grace. We grow in grace because God is transforming us. He is making us more like his son. But it is a slow process, isn't it? You look around and you may think, I don't really feel like I'm being conformed to the image of Jesus because my life doesn't look like it. It is a slow process, Christian, but it is happening in your life. God is slowly transforming us through the very ordinary means of grace. His word, the preaching of his word, the gospel, through the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and then through prayer. Sanctification is, as Scotty Smith says, the gospel removing the obstacles in my heart that keep me from loving God with everything I am and have. Sanctification is the gospel working in our hearts to transform us. So it's very important for us to realize that God not only forgives us, he transforms us. And that's the point that Paul is making in Titus 2 that Pastor James just read when Paul says to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. That's forgiveness. Bringing salvation for all people. And here comes the transforming part. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace comes to forgive us. Amen to that. And God's grace comes to transform us, to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, really, that's what grace is. Grace is not some power or something. Grace is Jesus Christ. But it's also important for us to see not only are we forgiven and God is transforming us, but redemption Jesus came as our redeemer. It's important to realize that redemption comes through the person of Jesus Christ as he is redeeming and working to bring about redemption in every area of our lives. Jesus comes to bring redemption even in the messy, sticky, sin-soaked areas of our lives that bring real devastating consequences. Grace forgives you, grace transforms you, and grace can transform your situation to see redemption come about to God's glory. Grace changes everything. That's what we'll see in Ezra 10 today. As we finish the book of Ezra, and next week we'll start the book of Nehemiah, we'll see that grace changes everything. So look in your Bibles at Ezra chapter 10. Verses one through three, hear the word of the Lord who not only forgives you, but transforms you as well. Ezra chapter 10, verse one. And while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehael, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children. According to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. 
Remember what we saw last week in Ezra chapter 9. Some Israelites, after returning from Babylon and Persia and settling into the city of Jerusalem to be the people of God, had begun to marry foreign women. They had forsaken God's commandments. And Ezra hears about this. He falls on his face, confessing the sin of the nation. Ezra threw himself and the nation on the mercy of God. And while Ezra is praying the prayer that we looked at in Ezra 9, a great multitude gathered around him of men, women, and children. We love children here at Grace, by the way. There's a verse why. We love children. Children gathered with their parents a great multitude. There's this massive corporate repentance as the nation comes together and the church fell on their faces and they wept bitterly for their sin. And then a man named Shechaniah came up to Ezra and he admitted the nation's sin. He admitted that they had broken covenant with Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, by marrying these foreign women. But notice the but there in verse two. But even now there is hope for Israel. In spite of this. In spite of our sin, Ezra, there's hope. What Shechaniah is saying here is that there is still hope. There is always hope when God's people blow it. When God's people totally mess up their lives due to sin, there is still hope because God can still bring about redemption. God's grace can transform any situation. What is happening here in Ezra 10 is nothing less than pure gospel hope. This is how God deals with sinners when they have forsaken him, but they come back in repentance and say, God, forgive me, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And this is where we all live, isn't it? This is us, Grace. Look into the mirror of Ezra 10 and see your pretty reflection. We sin all the time, and God continually forgives us because he is full of grace. And this is exactly what Robert Capon said, describing the Reformation that happened in the 1500s. He says this, speaking of the grace of God. The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace of bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness not the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter into the case. And this is exactly what Shechaniah was saying to Ezra. It is only the grace of God that saves sinners like us. We can't try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We just have to come and throw ourselves upon his mercy. Shechaniah told Ezra, there is still hope even though we have blown it. Shechaniah told Ezra, there is a bottle of 200 proof grace that we can drink from. Shechaniah offered Ezra a sip 200 proof grace. 
And what needed to be done now was this. The nation of Israel needed to renew covenant with the Lord and to put away these foreign wives and children. And I need to put away that spider web that it just keeps, I see it right there every time I look over here. And I noticed two things about the covenant renewal. First, there's counsel. Shechaniah said they're to put away the foreign wives and the children. He says, according to the counsel of my Lord, that's Ezra, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So there's this aspect of communal wisdom here. What do we do now? What do we do now that 111 men have married foreign women and they've had kids with them? What do we do now to restore uh, the relationship with the Lord, to enter, enter into this covenant again with him. First, there's counsel. There's this aspect of communal wisdom here. Shechaniah says that we need to seek your wisdom, Ezra, and the wisdom of all these other godly leaders on what we should do next. So sometimes the people of God need godly counsel when they find themselves in terrible, messy, sin-soaked situations and they have repented. What do you do after you blow it? And there are consequences to your sin. You seek godly counsel. You may have to humble yourself and admit that you've messed up and you need help. You are welcome to do that here, by the way. We will not shame you. We are here to help one another. So they're getting counsel from godly people. There's that spider whip. Secondly, they're getting their counsel from the law, from God's word. God's word is one of his ordinary means of grace. They're getting their counsel from the law. Did you see what Ezra said there in that phrase? According to the law. God's word is where we must go when we have ruined our lives with sin and we're trying to put it all back together. Seek wisdom from his word. Seek godly counsel from people, wise people, and seek counsel from God's word. But also notice the second part of this covenant renewal. They realize Not only do they need counsel, they realize that there are consequences to their sin. There are consequences to our sin. We're always affected inwardly by them. Sometimes we see them outwardly in our lives. But there's always consequences to sin. The Israelites who broke God's law, the consequence to their sin is they have to send away their foreign wives and their children. Because they broke God's law. I love what Dan Taylor says about breaking the law. People talk about breaking a law. In one sense, you never really break a law. The law stays the same no matter what you do. What you can do is break yourself by ignoring the fact of the law. If you step off a cliff, the law of gravity is not broken, but you may be. These Israelites who broke God's law, and they did, really just ended up breaking themselves. And they broke apart their families. And they had to send away these foreign wives along with their kids. So it isn't the law that gets broken. It's really us who end up broken. See, sometimes our sin brings severe consequences that require severe action. The perpetrators here who married foreign women had to send away their wives and their kids Can you imagine having to send away your wife and your kids because of your sin? It was difficult, I'm sure, but it was the appropriate action to show fruit in repentance. Repentance 
has to take the hard road. Sometimes we have to make drastic changes in our lives to fight sin. Sometimes we have to make hard decisions and sever the roots of sin that we have allowed to enter into our lives. These 111 Hebrew men, these 111 Israelites who married foreign women had to kick out these foreign women and the kids that they had with them because they were not Jews. They're not Israelites. That was very difficult. But it was all because they sinned. It was all because they ignored God's word. And they, they did this and only they are to blame. In high school, I had to sever some relationships with some longtime friends because it was destroying my relationship with God. I had to leave my drinking buddies behind because I was trying to follow Jesus. I had to cut those ties. In college, I had to break up with a girl because she wasn't wholeheartedly following Christ. Sometimes it's that easy. Sometimes it's as easy as, I've got to break up with you. I'm sorry. Though it's hard, it is easier than some severe consequences that come due to our sin. What about when we sin and it messes up everything and the consequences seem impossible to endure? I have a friend who impregnated his girlfriend. They were both Christians. They weren't married. And then they broke up. And every counsel he got from every Christian was sign over your rights to this baby and have nothing to do with it. And myself and one other pastor were the only people who told him, you have a responsibility. You must stick it out. You cannot run from this. And he did stick it out. And there have been many tough days. There have been many fights with his ex-girlfriend. There have been many court hearings and much money spent on attorney fees. All of this was a part of the consequences to his sin. But you know what? Grace has enabled him to make it through. Grace has sustained him through it all. He is forgiven, absolutely And he is being transformed by God through this process. And God is bringing about redemption through this entire process. It's just another reminder that grace not only forgives the bad things you do, God's grace transforms you out of the bad thing you are. And that's what we'll see in verses 4 and 5. So look there with me. Shechaniah says to Ezra, Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. And then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take oath that they would do as had been said, and so they took the oath. Shechaniah encourages Ezra to get up and begin the process of transformation for the nation because Ezra knew this is going to be hard to tell people they have to send away their wives and kids. It's why some of you are struggling right now with it. They have to send away their wives and their kids? That doesn't seem fair. So Ezra realizes the weight, the gravity of the consequences of their sin. So Shechaniah comes along and says, Ezra, get up. We got your back. You can do this by God's grace. Be strong. Lead us in this endeavor. Now notice what the text is saying to us. Your walk with God is a community project. Ezra got up and told the leaders in the nation, we're going to walk the long, hard road of repentance with all of you. Your walk with God is a community project. It is not just between you and Jesus. It involves all of us. We are the family of God. And like families, healthy families, we're here to walk with you through the thick and the thin. Do you come alongside people and encourage them like Shechaniah? 
we could use some more Shechaniahs around here. If you're looking for a way to serve, say, I'm going to sign up for the Shechaniah ministry. I just want to go around encouraging people that God, in his grace, will get them through whatever they're going through. We need people who will come alongside other people who have totally jacked up their life due to sin and tell them, get up, I'm with you. You can get through by God's grace. He'll sustain you, trust him. So let me be a Shechaniah right now. Whatever it is that you are in the middle of right now, whatever messy situation you've played a part in, a part in jacking up, hang in there. God's grace is sufficient. He has forgiven you, Christian Now trust him to transform you and the situation that you are in. Trust him to bring about redemption. Trust him because our God specializes in redemption. Ever since Genesis 3, this is all God's been doing, bringing about redemption. He's an expert in it. You can trust him to do what he does best. But get this. Your walk with God is a community project. If you don't tell someone about your situation, if you keep it all to yourself, then how can we be Shechaniahs? We're all sinners here. Understand that about us or you will be unnecessarily disappointed. But know that you're safe here. We're all messed up. Your pastors are messed up. Trust me. Can I get an amen, Greg? Some of you amen to that for Greg. I don't know what that, what does that say about us? They're amening that we're messed up. We are. Genesis 3 has jacked every single one of us up. But we will walk with you through whatever it is that you're going through. And we hope you'll do the same for us. And we will tell you over and over again, like Shechaniah, his grace is sufficient. Trust him. He is going to bring about redemption out of this situation. Maybe we should change our name to Shechaniah Baptist Church kind of has a nice ring to it. It might be fitting because the name Shechaniah means Yahweh is a neighbor. The Lord is a neighbor. Listen, Grace, the way that the Lord is a neighbor to you is through this church body. So please don't pull away in your struggles. Stay put, stay put, and let the church, the people of God, walk with you through your mess. Right here in this community of messed up sinners is where you will find God's sufficient transforming grace. Through the word, through the sacraments, through prayer, and through fellow sinners encouraging you to experience transformation by God's grace in Christ. Remember, grace not only forgives the bad things you do, grace transforms you out of the bad thing you are. Part of that transformation takes place here in the church community. One means of grace that God uses for our transformation is the church community. But maybe you're afraid to open up. Maybe you're afraid to share your mess Listen, you are free to admit your weakness, your sin, your failure here at Shechaniah Baptist Church. I went ahead and changed our name just for this sermon, okay? So let me say it again. You are free to admit your weaknesses, your failure, your sin here at Shechaniah Baptist Church. Do you have marriage problems? Tell someone. Because obviously the two of you can't figure it out because you have marriage problems. You need someone else to come and be a neighbor to you. 
Seek help. Seek counsel. Are you struggling with parenting? And what parent isn't? Hello? It's hard. Shame on you older people for not telling us young people that. I have six kids. Tell somebody. Are you struggling with blank? Tell somebody. We will not be surprised. We will not be startled by your sin, by your mess, by your struggle. Why? Because Jesus became our neighbor in the incarnation. John 1.14, the word of God came and dwelt, tabernacled with us. It's the whole reason Jesus came. Jesus came to redeem sinners, and that's who all of us are. So we won't be surprised at your struggle and your mess because we're messed up because of sin too. And some of us have made some very stupid decisions and sinned in ways that are severely affecting our lives. But we're slowly moving forward one day at a time by his grace. That's what we're here for as a church, to be a part of your transformation process. And that's why Shechaniah told Ezra to get up because he said, we the leaders have to help these people. We the community of God have to help these people get back on track. So what happened after Ezra and Shechaniah and these leaders took this oath to purge sin from Israel and to begin to walk the long, hard road of repentance? Look at verses 6 through 17. And then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiled. And then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month, on the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, to Yahweh, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said, but the people are many, and it is time, a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jazeah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. And Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. So the people show up quickly because they know that transformation happens in community. I love this. Three days in some 40 to 50 miles away, and they are there. I mean, the leader said, show up or we're taking your property and kicking you out of here. And they show up. 
It's a beautiful thing when churches respond swiftly to their leaders. Can I just insert that here? It's a beautiful thing when the church responds swiftly to its leaders. These Israelites respond to their leaders. They show up and it's cold outside. It's the month of December. It's about 40 or 50 degrees And the people are trembling because of their sin, because some people have married foreign women, and they're trembling because of the heavy rain, because it's 40, 50 degrees out. These people know what they have done. And verse 14 says, they are aware of the fierce wrath of our God. So Ezra stands up and calls the nation to walk the hard road of repentance. He asks them to make confession to the Lord, which in Hebrew is literally, give praise to the Lord. Now notice that Ezra is preaching the gospel here. He's preaching the good news to Israel to make sure they're repenting the correct way. The Israelites have acknowledged the fierce wrath of our God in verse 14, but Ezra wants to make sure that the gospel is motivating their repentance. Ezra wants to make sure that God's grace is motivating their repentance. Ezra probably told them something like this that Tim Keller said. In fear-based repentance, we don't learn to hate the sin for itself and it doesn't lose its attractive power. We learn only to refrain from it for our own sake. But when we rejoice over God's sacrificial suffering love for us, seeing what it cost him to save us from sin, we learn to hate the sin for what it is. We see what the sin cost God. What most assures us of God's unconditional love, Jesus' costly death, is what most convicts us of the evil of sin. Fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. Joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. And that's what Ezra is shooting for here. He doesn't want them to repent out of fear. Otherwise, they will end up hating themselves for what they have done. Ezra wants them to be motivated by the gospel, to be motivated by God's love, to be motivated by God's grace, to be motivated by the joy that redeemed sinners experience when they remember that God forgives them. And that will make them hate the sin. Fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. Joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. So Ezra calls on the nation to get walking the hard road of repentance by forsaking their foreign wives and children, and the nation agrees to do this. But notice how God's grace is already transforming them. In verses 13 and 14, they reply, Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. The nation knew that this is not a light matter. They knew that there was no easy remedy, no magic wand of grace to just make all the consequences disappear. They knew that there needed to be an investigation into each marriage. People needed to be confronted And the leaders needed to help the offenders understand God's transforming grace. They knew that the offenders, those who had married foreign women, they knew that they needed encouragement to forsake their foreign wives, to get on the road, the hard road of repentance, and then to trust God for his transforming grace. So they said, let's not rush this process. They understood that grace not only forgives the bad things you do, it transforms you out of the bad thing you are. Of course, there were some who opposed the idea 
of holding these people accountable. Verse 15 says that four men did not support this idea. We're not sure what they opposed exactly, but one of the men may not have supported this action because he had married a foreign wife himself. If the Meshulam mentioned in verse 15 who's opposing this action is the same Meshulam of verse 29, then he broke faith with Yahweh, married a foreign woman, and had kids, so he's not in favor of having to send this foreign wife and children away. But there was opposition by these men. Did these men oppose sending the people away because a lengthy investigation would have to be performed? If so, then this shows us that there are some people who don't understand grace and they only want to see swift consequences. There are some people who are so quick to judge, they want to see swift consequences riding on the tails of the hammer of justice. These kinds of people forget that it is only by God's grace that they have not fallen into sin? Or did these men oppose any form of reaction to sin? If so, then this shows that there are people who think too lightly of sin. They think it's no big deal. They think that some people are just so uptight about sin. These kinds of people love having one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Here's the lesson. Don't be either one of these people. Have mercy on those who mess up their lives because of sin and have a fear of God's holiness. This is what Jude is saying when he says, have mercy on those who doubt and hate even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Have mercy on those who fall into sin, but then hate that sin too. Fear God. Well, in spite of this protest by these four individuals, The leaders followed through with their plan. Verses 16 and 17 tell us they went from house to house investigating the matter to find out which Israelites had married foreign women. And this process took them about four months, three months, Ezra says. It shows us the careful work of weighing and investigating each case. So on average, they would have averaged about 1.2 cases per day. So this was not done quickly. This was serious. They took their time. No magic genie wand of grace. They took their time to talk with each individual about it. It took about 75 days for 111 cases. Now, let's see who these 111 offenders are because I'm sure you're itching to know. We like juicy gossip stuff, don't we? Defenders' names are actually recorded in Scripture. Their names are recorded in Scripture along with every other person's name in Scripture who have messed up their lives. So look at verses 18. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Maaseah, Eleazar, Jerob, and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Immer, Hanani and Zebediah, of the sons of Harim, Maaseah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehael, and Uzziah, of the sons of Pashur, Elioenai, Maaseah, Ishmael, Nethanel, Jazabad, and Elasa, of the Levites, Jazabad, Shimei, Keliah, that is Kalida, Pethahiah, Judah, and Eleazar, of the singers, Eliashib, of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri, and of Israel, of the sons of Parosh, Ramiah, Isaiah, Malchijah, Mejamin, Eleazar, Hashabiah, and Benaiah. 
of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. Of the sons of Zatu, Elionai, Eliashib, Mataniah, and Jeremoth, Zabad, and Aziza. Of the sons of Bebai were Jehoahan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athli. Of the sons of Bani were Meshulam, Maluk, Adiah, Jashub, Sheel, and Jeremoth. Of the sons of Pehath, Moab, Adna, Kelai, Benaiah, Maasiah, Mataniah, Bezalel, Binui, and Manasseh. Of the sons of Haram, Eleazar, Ishajah, Malchijah, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Maluk, and Shemariah. Of the sons of Hashum, Matanai, Matatah, Zabad, Eliphelet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimei. Of the sons of Bani, Maadai, Amram, Uel, Benaiah, Bediah, Kaluhi, Veniah, Meramoth, Eliashib, Mataniah, Matanai, and Jaasu. Of the sons of Benui, Shimei, Shelemiah, Nathan, Adiah, Makna Debai, Shishai, Shirai, Azarel, Shelemiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. Of the sons of Nebo, Jael, Mattathah, Zabad, Zabina, Jedai, Joel, and Benaiah. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. I know that sounds like I was speaking in tongues, but I was not. And I know that doesn't necessarily warm your heart. It reads like an ancient sex offender website. But you need these people. You need to read their names. I need to read these names. I need these people. I need to take time out in my sermon to read all of these names, knowing that you aren't going to get the warm fuzzies. Why? Why do I need these names? Why do you need these names? Because this is the word of God and these people's names have been written down as a warning to us, as Paul says in Romans 15, 4. Every single one of these names reminds us that we too are prone to turn from the Lord, all of us. Every single one of these names reminds us that we too are capable of committing the most heinous sins imaginable. Every single one of these names might be worth printing out and taping to the front of your computer before you get on the internet. Every single one of these names might be just what you need to help you grow in sanctification. As I was working on this sermon, I thought, I wish when I read a book on sanctification that this would be one of the passages that gets discussed. If I ever write a book on sanctification, verses 18 through 44 is going to be my primary passage. It shows us that all of us are susceptible to sin. These 111 men are here in scripture to scare us, to startle us, to remind us too that we are sinners who can do some very heinous things. And these 111 people included offenders at all levels. Priests, Levites, and the lay people. Understand this, Grace. Sin is no respecter of persons. We are all capable of turning from the Lord. And you may be tempted to think that this wasn't that big, big, big of a deal because it's only 111 men out of some 50,000 Israelites. You may be thinking, what's the big deal? 111 guys out of 50,000 Israelites, 111 of them married foreign women? That's not that big of a deal. The percentage of offenders was small compared to the large number of Israelites, but no sin is too small. And that's what verses 18 through 44 
are telling you and me. No sin is too small. So verses 18 through 44 are a means of God's grace to transform you. This list of 111 Hebrew names is screaming at you. Don't mess up your life. Don't flirt with sin. Don't let your heart get cold. I'm sure these 111 men would agree with scholar D.A. Carson who said, we don't drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, we don't gravitate toward godliness, but godlessness. These 111 men would tell you and me that we don't naturally drift toward holiness. We naturally drift toward sin. And now these 111 men are dealing with the consequences of their sin. These 111 men started walking the long, hard road of repentance that day. They had to send away their wives and their kids. But God gave them grace. Now, we don't know what happened to the women and children who were sent away. We don't get details about child support or alimony. We don't get details about visiting rights and who got the kids on the weekends. You have them for the summer. I get them on Christmas break. We don't get any of those details because the author of Ezra and Nehemiah, which I think is Ezra at this point, Ezra doesn't want us to get caught up in those details. He's not interested in answering all of our curiosities. But inquiring minds want to know, Ezra, Ezra wants us to recognize how damaging sin can be. He wants us to see how it will mess up our lives. He wants us to see how compromise will ruin one person's life and the life of a church community. Ezra wants us to see sin and to run from it. He's not interested in answering our questions. What happened to them? But Ezra also wants to give us some hope. The author wants us to see that even if we have to travel the hard road of repentance, God's grace is there to sustain us. Maybe you've blown it. Maybe you've made a mess of your life because of sin. Maybe you're surrounded by consequences. Ezra 10 is for you. Remember, God specializes in redemption. He can take the mangled gnarly, messed up situation that you have created because of your sin and he can bring about redemption. He does it by his grace, his sufficient grace, his transforming grace, his grace that not only forgives the bad things you do, but transforms you out of the bad thing you are. His grace is there to forgive you. Will you repent and trust in him? You can be clean and pure and blameless in his eyes. His grace is there to sustain you moment by moment and transform you in the midst of mess. Trust him. And one of the ways that God transforms us in the church community is as we come alongside one another, encouraging one another like Shechaniah, encouraging one another to keep our eyes on Jesus, our great redeemer. Imagine if we became a church full of Shechaniahs who constantly encouraged one another that God's grace can transform us and any situation. May we all act like members of Shechaniah Baptist Church here in Santa Maria, California. Let me be a Shechaniah this morning and remind you of what Paul says in Romans 6, 4. 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Because Jesus is alive, because we have been united to him, we are in union with him, then we can walk in newness of life, transformed by his grace into his image. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that it doesn't hide the messy parts. It's not a book of heroes. It's a book of failures except for your son. I pray for anyone here today who's just made a total mess of their life. We all sin every day. Some of us have just done some awful things and we're just dealing with the consequences. I pray for them, God, that they would leave here full of hope. Encouraged, God, that you can bring redemption out of any situation. May we all leave here hating sin and desiring that holiness that without no one will see the Lord. May we leave here today with our eyes on your son, Jesus Christ, who became our neighbor in the incarnation. In Jesus' name, amen.